My name is uh, Nick Rogers, and I am the family pastor here at CCF, and it's always a privilege to feed you from the Word of God. I will be honest, this is not a Mother's Day message. <laughs> so if you came ready to be encouraged, moms, I hope you are, but it won't be in the way that you thought. So hopefully, hopefully the Lord will speak uh, kindly and graciously to us this morning with a difficult text before us in Luke. But also, I just wanted to also say, if you feel like you're on the outside, if you don't know people here and you're new to these things or some of these things really speak to your heart or you feel just that pull in your heart to go talk to somebody, I'd love to talk to you about these things and about anything that stood out today. But again, my mom's in the, in the crowd today, so sorry. Before we get started, so I always love to start with a main point or a main idea that kind of guides our time together. You can see it on the screen. It says, our need, your need, my need this morning is union with God in faith that Jesus is the only one who can give us true answers to life. And I could feel in the crowd somebody say, what the heck? How in the world was that the main point from what we just read? And to you, I would say, my Jedis, that you do have to start with the force by lifting a rock first and that's called context. And so, uh, to unpack this main idea, I would love to get into the context of the of this uh, these scenes that we're seeing this morning here in our passage in Luke. So, if you would think with me a little bit and look with me a little bit as I post pictures, because I'm a visual learner, and to all my visual learners in the room, you're welcome. So, we have on the screen a picture of the first century temple, and you can see that it is quite large. The courtyard is quite big. And in chapter 19 of Luke, Jesus has been clearing the temple uh, in righteous anger, and it's caused a pretty big scene. And then after he's done doing that, he seems to kind of make that happen, charges them, rebukes them for what they've made God's house into, which will set up our text here at the end of chapter 20, and then into Luke uh, 21. And then... Luke 20 shifts, verse 1, you can see it there if you have your Bible open to it. And Jesus is in the temple and he's proclaiming the gospel. And that is the Greek word for good news. This is the good news that Jesus has been proclaiming and he has consistently proclaimed in his earthly ministry. And I always love to look at ways in which Luke brings that out. So in Luke chapter 4, Jesus gives an example. Or Luke gives us an example of Jesus doing this. And he walks into... A synagogue, and they hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, gospel, good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and dropped the mic and then just walked off. No. He uh, says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing and everybody freaks out. Not much has changed since that time and look forward to now in chapter 20 and 21. So Jesus, he's preaching the good news. Here come the Jewish elite. And one by one in their sects uh, that make up the Sanhedrin, they begin 
to call, they're summarized in chapter one, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So just kind of this overall group of people that make up this big group of the ruling leaders of the Jews. And then they try to trap Jesus with a bunch of questions from each sect of people. And then we find, as if we were in a film, which I like that analogy, the first scene is this. We get two questions, one from Jesus and one from the Sadducees, and then a rebuke. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is, a re- there is no resurrection. Luke doesn't spend a lot of time unpacking the Sadducees and their way of belief, but we do have a lot of extra biblical evidence as well to support what we know about the Sadducees. And I think that that's revealing because they basically disappear after the destruction of the temple and the Roman Empire just begins wiping out all Jewish and Christian monuments and things like that. And so the Sadducees were known for their literal interpretation of the Old Testament law, specifically the five, the five first books of the Bible. They rejected all the new ideas of the Pharisees. Politically and socially, the Sadducees made friends with the Greeks. That's why you don't put it in your pocket, so you don't turn it off. I was like, I got really quiet all of a sudden. So they make friends with the Greek culture and adopt a lot of their political system and really rub shoulders with those people. They were essentially secularists, believing that God did not intervene in human affairs. And were literal in their handling of the Old Testament law and resisted the new ideas, and again, of the Pharisees, meaning that anything that they brought out that was supernatural in nature, they rejected. So armed with that information, I think you can begin to see how the main idea begins to connect to our context when we think about this scene. Jesus is in the temple, and he's preaching the good news. And a lot of times what Jesus would include in that is the resurrection for those who believe in his name and follow him. And the Pharisees are like, yeah, we're, we, we understand the resurrection, but we don't believe that you're the Messiah. But the Sadducees are like, well, it's all wrong. You're all wrong. And Jesus, you're double wrong because you're annoying and we don't like you. And so here they come. Jesus is preaching the good news, this power of the resurrection to come, and he's going to do this as he's crucified and raised again on the third day. And here come the Sadducees with all of this friction in the air. It's hard to see that as a was reading in English, but there's a lot of tension. Verse 28, they come to him. I'm going to summarize this little section. With this obscure passage in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus and other places in the Old Testament law. And... It's this passage about when the spouse of a brother dies and they had no children, that the other brother should marry her and provide an offspring for her because that was a big part of their culture and how God was expanding the Jewish influence and being a blessing to the nations by multiplying and filling the earth. So they mock him for this. They're mocking him, right? I think that you can see that they're being really rude and insisting and being very sarcastic in the way that they're saying this. Here's what they say in verse 30, or verse 29. And now there were seven brothers, and they first took a wife, and then 
and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. And by that time, you're thinking sarcastically, there's no way this woman's sticking to the next brother. She's like, no, no, they're all dying. No, I'm good, I'm good, I'll be fine. You know, that kind of thing. But afterward, as the woman died also, in the resurrection, whose wife is she be? Whose wife will she be? Rude, right? <laughs> mean, aggressive. In a parallel passage, as Jesus begins this address to them, you can almost feel the tension in the air. Jesus really goes right to the heart of the problem in Matthew 21, or 22, 29. Here's what Jesus answers them. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. I appreciate straightforward Jesus. I, I like that. That's, that's helpful. You are wrong. Why? Because you know not, neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So you, number one, don't know the Bible, and you do not know God. That's your big problem. And they're like, oh, okay. But then Luke, in his account, here's what he says. And Jesus said to them, the sons of the sage marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Brief comment. It's very interesting. Those who are worthy to attain. Jesus has been preaching how to attain it. It's through faith and belief in him. But they're rejecting that. So he's summarizing his teaching there. From the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, which is before verse numbers, they refer to passages in scripture by labels and labeling names. Where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but the living. For all live to him. So Luke is concerned that you hear Jesus' response. You, number one, you see their silliness in their question and how foolish it is. But also that you understand. That you have ears to hear, eyes to see today. Jesus points out their first premise is false. You guys are already on the, the wrong foot because the age to come is not like today. Can I get an amen? Right? Because heaven is not just a continuation of this life where we just keep dying and everything's still broken. That's what I'm saying when I was asking for an amen. So if you, you know. Amen. Uh, thank you. Appreciate it. Because the age to come is not like this age. Praise in this life, people marry and have children. That is a part of it. But in the age to come, resurrection for all believers who believe in Jesus Christ, there will be no marriage or death because they will be complete. It is there that I say, when we lose those close to us that we love, and, heart, and our hearts just break not having them here. If they believed in the Lord, or little, little Peasley. There is hope for the resurrection of the dead in Jesus Christ alone. 
So those who are resurrected will be like angels. What that means is they're sons of God. That means they have a body, a resurrected body that is not like our earthly body, but better. So union with God then, this is the main point of the whole sermon. So here it is. Union with God, not a family full of children, ultimately thwarts death. Sadducees missed the whole point. It's God. Union with him that matters most. So Moses showed that the dead are raised in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the active God of those men. See, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So his emphasis this morning is on the hope of the resurrection and the eternal life that awaits those who believe in him and become sons of God. So now to our second question that Jesus asks, the scribes. So the Sadducees probably huff and puff away. And the scribes come up and they pipe up from the back. Like in a good movie, you can't see who's really talking necessarily. The scribes are like, good job, Jesus. That was sweet. You know, got him. Showed him what's up. And he's like, oh, yeah, you guys. And they're like, oh, no. We should not have said anything. What do we do? This is bad. Run. Jesus says, I've got some questions for you. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is the Messiah his son or the Christ in Greek? See, Jesus' genealogy traces ancestry through the non-royal line of Zerubbabel. And Nathan, that's in Luke chapter 3. Why is that important? Because genealogies are boring and we mainly skip over them when we read the Bible. For ourselves, I'm guilty. So why is that important? Because in a world obsessed with power and prestige and money and influence, it would be easy, and you can see why this group of people, the Sanhedrin at this time, Reject Jesus and completely ignore him because he's not important. He doesn't have those things that they want. And the branch, even though he displayed the true wisdom of God, is rejected because he is not powerful in a political way. And Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, which is a very interesting, difficult passage for them, for the scribes, because it describes the Messiah as David's son, who is also his Lord. And what is crazy about this scene is it ends right there. Completely stops. Jesus does not answer his own question. He just poses the question, and then it's just left in the air. And if you're like me and a true Westerner, you love when your series gets completed. You love when your answers are nice and tidy and everybody answers it the exact way you wanted with no, no loopholes, no nothing. And we really like it all tidy and neat, but nothing comes to us that way, does it? So I think it hangs over the air as Luke continues his gospel because he's going to show you exactly who the Messiah is. Because the Messiah is the servant of the Lord, from Isaiah. 
He will bring about God's greater exodus as he redeems his people from their sins, lifted up victoriously for doing so. And that's Luke 9 and Isaiah 52 through 53. As the glorious son of man, his favorite title for himself, he will be lifted up to receive the kingdom of God from the ancient of days, Daniel 7. And as David, David's son, vindicated from unjust suffering under the Roman Empire from the Jewish leaders, the branch will be exalted at the right hand of God, where he will wait until all his enemies are put under his feet. And what is the last great enemy to be destroyed? Is death. Funny how the Sadducees believe death is the end. And Jesus says, oh, it's the last enemy to be destroyed. I'll show you just how much death, how much power death has when I rise from it. As the gospel of forgiveness is proclaimed to all the nations. See, the Bible, here's the question that I think Jesus is asking you through the Holy Spirit right now. And I would say, if you're a male between 16 to 55. But anybody, but the, just in general, this, I see this struggle in you. There are many struggles with the claims of the Bible, aren't there? For some. Who do you believe Jesus is? And will you believe Jesus' words? The Sadducees do not. They've, they see all the Bible and all supernatural claims in Scripture to be foolish. That's for old pagan weirdo Jews. We're the new Jews who understand philosophy, the new science. We really understand the Bible now, thinking as a Greek, looking at the Jew, Jewish culture and the Jewish Scriptures. See, this morning, I know what it's like to doubt. To have questions that go, that you feel like aren't answered to the fullest extent or you have all different things that you're asking questions about. And there are real answers to some of those questions, but we got to ask this question. Where are my questions coming from? See, Jesus isn't demanding that we not use our brains and we not use the logic that he gives us in our consciousness. But God has given us also amazing extra-biblical evidence to support the resurrection. There's tons of research and amazing, and people are coming to faith right now as we speak by researching the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise God. But in our church and in our churches, there's this undercurrent of hidden doubt. See, our problem is not a lack of evidence, but a lack of faith and longing to be united to Christ and God. And I think it comes from a craving of omnipotent knowledge. What I mean by omnipotent is complete and all-powerful knowledge. And I got a really hard truth for those that want that. You cannot get it. Because it would require you to be God, which I look at you and you're not. It would require you to know everything and you do not. And that's okay. 
Because you can trust Jesus Christ this morning. You do not have to walk out that door as the Sadducees did. Muttering to yourself how stupid Christians are and how much they haven't gotten anything right. We have gotten a lot wrong, trust me. But Jesus has never gotten anything wrong. He knows your biggest problem is not answering every little question and covering all the tracks. He knows that you need faith and belief in him and ultimate resurrection. To be united with God and experience the love and grace and power of Jesus. See, Timothy Keller says, Jesus himself is the main argument for why we should believe Christianity. If you're in that place, I'm going to beg you. I'm, I'm really begging you to come out of the darkness and into the light and talk to somebody about your doubts and your fears. Somebody in this room, people sitting next to you, they would love to talk to you and pray with you and care for you. And now we get into Jesus' warning. Look with me in verse 45. And in the hearing of the people, all the people. That's wild. Jesus is shouting. I want everybody to hear what I'm going to say. Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and love the greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor in the feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. This is a very common rebuke that Jesus has given in chapter 11, 13, and all the other gospels. With all the Sadducees' doubts, plots to trap Jesus, the Pharisees' man-made laws, and then even talking about politics and who gets to pay taxes, categorically, Jesus wants you to understand something. You can try to put every obstacle in front of Christ, or you can come to him. What will you do? Are you going to love power, money, prestige? Will you burden people on social media and in your life and other places and bully everybody around you because you think you're better than them? Or will the church simply look to Christ? The widow is the most vulnerable person, one of the most vulnerable people in the first century. And honestly, I would say they're still very vulnerable today, aren't they? Jesus tells these religious leaders, your condemnation is so severe. So for my victims of religious abuse, Jesus sees you. Some people speak for the name of God all the time. It's happening right now in the city of Dayton, right now as we speak. There are people using God's name to shackle people and not set them free. And if you're somebody in here today who would rather be a bully and pride yourself in following God, but yet you shackle others and you burden people with your man-made laws and you shame them, 
for their place in life. Jesus tells you, pay attention to him. See, Jesus' response to the Sadducees turns away from speculation about the nature of life to come to preparation for the new life. Jesus does not offer objective mathematical proof to refute everything about resurrection, but his answer is grounded in the testimony of the Bible, of Scripture, and God. See, looking for indisputable proof kills your faith. It's not findable. And for the atheist or the person that's on the outside this morning, it's not possible for you either. At the end is faith. But if you're here today, there's so, such good news for you. Because Jesus is on the prowl. And he is standing firm and we are still seeing his words of life. And if you come to him and believe in his mighty good news, you'll enjoy everything that Jesus has to give. Because 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this about this mystery. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Now to our final scene, and I'll go very quickly. Scene number two. One tragedy in our response in faith. Jesus has been teaching, and he looks up, and the camera pans us over with Jesus, where Jesus is looking. And he sees rich people coming to toss in their gifts in the offering box. And he saw a poor widow has put in more than all of them, right? Because she puts in two coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has given all she had. I want you to imagine the scene because it's full of tension. Jesus has been mocked, ridiculed, trapped. And he's answered their questions faithfully because he's gracious and kind to give us answers to our questions. And a strong rebuke of the religious groups. And he ends it with a talking about devouring widows' houses. And here comes a poor widow. Right on cue. See, what they mean by that, what Jesus means by plundering women or widows' houses is they literally took their stuff in the name of God. You have to give everything you have to God. Instead of caring for them, they used them as a way to line their pockets with money, look good so that they could give more and look even better. And that same window, widow, listen, listen to this, it's so good. The Bible's so much better than you could ever imagine. The same widow who's been abused by her religious leaders who were supposed to be speaking on God's behalf but did not, what does she do? She still gives out of faith in God. Church, do you not see that this is not ultimately a scene about money and giving? This will not be a give more to the church sermon. It should not be because that's not the main point. Sure, we could talk about giving, 
but it's deeper. The poor widow, God has seen her, literally in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is looking right at her and sees her through faithful worship, is seeing her, even though she is oppressed by the very people who are supposed to be encouraging her to worship. Church, there's another story in Luke. We're going to begin to end right here. On the screen, you'll see it. There's another woman who appears in Luke's gospel. She's very similar. I'm going to kind of paraphrase a bit of it and then read some of it. But this woman, she's of the city. And I think your imagination can connect all the dots for what that means. She's a sinner of like the worst kind to the Pharisees. But she has this ointment, and she finds out that Jesus is going to be at this Pharisee's house. And so she comes, and she begins to weep, kiss his feet. She's weeping so much, there's so many tears hitting his feet that she's wiping it with her hair and then anointing him with oil. And they are scandalized. How could this righteous man let a woman like that do this? The Pharisee invited, that invited him was like, what? who is this man? If he were a real prophet, he would never do something like this and let this woman who's a sinner touch him. And this is never good when Jesus does this to us. Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. Nope, you don't want him to. I promise you don't want him to say it. He's going to. He gives him a little parable about an extreme debt that was paid and, and, and uh, forgiven, and then another one that was smaller. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said, you've judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has poured and anointed my feet with oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And then he looks at her. Your sins are forgiven. Because those that are forgiven little, guess what? They will love very little. And those who are forgiven much will love much. And I think the point of this, as her faith has saved her, we see it in this widow as well, the same type of thing. And the real question for you and me is, are we people that have been forgiven little? So you love very little especially your Savior? Or do you love your Savior much because he's forgiven you so much? For most in this room, I do believe that is most of this room. Faithful believers who know their life is messy and need help continue to trust a faithful Savior and a loving, loving, loving Father. And he'll keep cleaning up our brokenness. 
And some of you, I would also want you to see, and if you're falling asleep, I hope you wake up. Some of you have been harmed. You've been burdened by the church. The religious leaders that should have cared for your souls have burdened you with more weight. Slandered you, harmed you, when they should have loved you. All in the name of God. Jesus is not silent about that. He is still the Lion of Judah. And he will pay back all that people owe him if there is no repentance of that sin. All sin will go punished, will be punished. No one that is guilty will be let go. And then also remember, Jesus can take the burden that you have under, as Matthew says, his yoke, which is not actually a yoke. There's no burden with Jesus because he takes all the burden because his burden is easy and his yoke is light. So if you're weary and heavy laden, you come to Jesus this morning. Talk to somebody around you for prayer. I'll be down front if you need to talk. And those of you who are experiencing doubt and fear about your faith, I would encourage you to be like this, these two women. Though they were beat down and oppressed, they come to the Savior. They come to the Lord in faith. Lastly, to those who are on the outside of Christianity and not sure what to do with it, I would encourage you, do not resist faith in Jesus any longer. If you believe in Jesus the Son, he will make you a son of God. And you will experience what we all long for, which is being known by God, having union with God, and then also the joy of seeing those who we have loved and lost that were believers. I'll be down for prayer if you need me or find someone close to you to pray with you. As Matt and them come up, we're going to sing one last song together. I'd ask you to stand. And let us say a quick prayer to Jesus, our Savior. God, in this room are many, many, many things happening all at once. So many lives that have been brought into this place to worship you. God, I pray that you would set the prisoner free. God, that you would convict us of our sins, but that you would show us that you're a gracious and forgiving Savior if we come to you. God, as we sing to you, we pray that you would increase our faith to trust you in everything that you've said. In your name we pray, amen.